0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: David Rubenstein is known as one of the most successful business leaders in the country, as the founder of the Carlyle Group, one of the preeminent private equity firms uh, in the country. He's also one of the great philanthropists in this country, investing in uh, academic institutions around the country, in historical institutions. in preserving the artifacts of our democracy and in educating people uh, about our democracy. I had a chance to sit down with him on a visit to University of Chicago campus to talk about his life and career and about where we are today in our history. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Good to see you. My pleasure to be here. I, uh, uh, you know, in just doing some reading for this uh, conversation uh it is what 's clear is you 're not the classic story people think p- very successful billionaire philanthropist all of the things that you do must come from a prominent you know jewish family-- cl- father you know lawyer accountant right. so on
0: that that's not that 's not your story. You're correct. Um, very often, if you have a last name like Rubenstein, people think you're Jewish. Your father must have been a lawyer or a doctor. But uh, I like to remind people there are plenty of blue-collar Jews, and my father was one of them. He dropped out of high school to um, go into World War II. He came back. He met my mother. He was 20. She was 17 when they got married. I was born more than nine months later. My father never completed high school, and uh, nor did my mother. And um, he worked in the post office his entire life and never made more than $7,000 a year. And I was their only child. So uh, in hindsight, it was a great advantage because my children have grown up being in a wealthy family. It's not as big an advantage as you might think. There are advantages for sure. But if you are growing up in a less wealthy family, you know you've got to make it on your own. And so in hindsight, the greatest thing my parents gave to me, aside from unconditional love, was a sense that I could achieve something, and that was really within my capability to do so, but I couldn't rely on them.
1: And, and why did did they not uh, pursue, did your dad, I guess in that day, not to be sexist about it, but the GI Bill uh, would have afforded him a chance to go for a higher...
0: My father education. came from a family of seven children, and they just had no money... Um, He probably didn't have the intellectual aspirations. Uh, He wanted to get married. He wanted to support a family. It just, nobody in his family had ever gone to college. So today, when you look back, so many people went to college on the GI Bill, and it seems like it would be a normal thing to have done, but there was no um, history of that in his family. Nobody ever went to pass high school, and very few actually graduated from high school.
1: When did your family get here to the United States?
0: My A grandfather on my father's side came from the Ukraine in early uh, part of the 20th century indirectly. Um, There was a pogrom against Jews in uh, the Ukraine around 1909, 1910. My family was not the swiftest, probably. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so they bought a ticket, they thought, to the United States, but it only got them to Leeds, England. And it turned out there was a scam in the Ukraine around that time where people were selling tickets, they said, to get to the United States, but only took people to Leeds, England. So it wound up that there were roughly 10,000 Russian or Ukrainian Jews stuck in Leeds, England for a number of years. But ultimately, my grandfather came over when he was about 10 years old. And, um, uh, and, and I was given the, the manifest of the... Of the uh, shipped by the National Archives at one point and it said 10 Hebrew in other words they made it clear that you know to identify what his religion was my father came from the same area for the
1: same reason when he he, uh, uh, 10 years later right before the immigration wall uh, kind of slammed down your father from uh, Ukraine Ukraine okay yeah
0: well people don't realize that the Ukraine had enormous numbers of Jews and they still do have a fair number of Jews um the truth is that, you know, more Jews lived in Russia and Ukraine than in Germany.
1: There were a, a lot of Jews in your neighborhood in
0: Baltimore as well. Uh, what, was, what was your neighborhood like? Baltimore was the most rigidly segregated city in the United States, I believe, by religion. Um, the Supreme Court in the Shelley v. Kramer case in 1948 forbade restrictive mortgages, which is to say it's no longer legal to sell, to forbid somebody to buy a home in your mortgage because they're black or Jewish. Baltimore didn't quite get the word. So even though it was against the law, Baltimore just kept saying, you really can't live there. So Baltimore was a town where the Italians lived in one place, the Germans lived in another place, the high wasps lived in another place. The German Jews live in another place, and the Russian or Schlepper Jews, as I would say, <laughs> live in another place. And we were in the Schlepper Jew category. So, um, you know, we lived in the blue-collar um, neighborhood. Um, all my relatives lived within, you know, half a mile. We all lived in these little row houses. They were, I back, went back and looked at they were 800 square feet. That was the size of the house. So um, they were they were small, 800 square feet.
1: I had a conversation the other day with Nancy Pelosi you must remember her dad he yes, was uh,
0: he was the mayor and if so were her was so was her brother
1: yeah yeah and they were sort of masters of the ethnic politics of of Baltimore
0: that's right her father was a legendary mayor and her brother actually served a term though he got tired of it and uh, he, he retired uh, relatively he young. Had t-
1: well he was also mayor during the riots right. in the 60s which was a that tough was a problem time. one of your classmates, Uh, in Baltimore, became the mayor of Baltimore. Kurt Schmoke, first African-American mayor of Baltimore.
0: Kurt was um, a legendary high school uh, performer. You know, we we all go to high school and you often say, uh, this person is going to be president of the United States. This person is a superstar. Very rarely does it ever happen that the person who's the superstar in high school becomes a superstar in life. um, In Kurt's case, it did really happen. Kurt was a legendary uh, football player, president of student government, and then he went to Yale and did some famous things at Yale, won a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Harvard Law School. Um, He went back to practice law in Baltimore, and when I got to work in the White House for Jimmy Carter, we brought him onto the White House staff. He worked there for a few years before he went back to Baltimore and got elected. A very talented person. I think he um, is... You know, extraordinarily gifted person. He now is the head of the Howard Hughes Foundation. He's on a number of uh, very good philanthropic uh, boards, and he's also the uh, president of the University of Baltimore now.
1: You, He said of you that you were the guy who they thought was going to uh, have a prominent career in government, and you you had an early interest in, in politics.
0: Yes, I— when I grew up in the 60s, um, the idea of going into business and making money didn't really exist. If you wanted to go into business in those days, you went into your father's business, or you went into Procter & Gamble, J.P. Morgan, IBM, not places that Jews often were likely to rise up. So Jews often became doctors or lawyers. And so that was really the kind of career path I thought I was on. And then inspired by President Kennedy's speech about giving back to the country, I thought I'll be a lawyer and go into government and politics, and that was what I considered the highest calling of mankind at the time. Um, And so I ultimately um, uh, got a job after I graduated from law school at the University of Chicago uh, at Paul Weiss, where Ted Mm Sorensen, who had written the legendary speech that President Kennedy gave, uh, was practicing law, and I worked for him for a few years, uh, more or less. What was How much contact did you have with
1: Sorensen, of course, being— legendary for the speeches that he wrote, not just that great inaugural address, and for being sort of an intellectual alter ego uh, for President Kennedy.
0: He was considered the intellectual blood bank, and Richard Nixon often said, if I had Ted Sorensen writing my speeches, I would have been President of the United States. (laughs) Um, There's no doubt that uh, when you're a young associate, you look up to certain people, and you think you're more attached to them than they think you're attached to them, so I don't think Ted Sorensen was going home at night saying to his wife, "You know, I got this young associate; who's really bright." I, I doubt that was happening. But I was telling my friends I'm working for Ted Sorensen. I was writing some memos and so forth. But I, I can't say I was really that close to him. But I did some work for him, and I enjoyed it.
1: I met him during the uh, Obama campaign in 2008, uh, toward the end of his life, and he uh, he he was his eyesight was gone. And but what a Fabulous storyteller he was.
0: He um, had a for with words that just I haven't seen any other president, presidential speechwriter have. He just had a gift. Some people have certain gifts. They're athletes or they're great scholars. He had a gift with words that you couldn't say from his background it was clear where it came from because he had a law school career that was nice. He was first in his class in law school, but he'd worked on Capitol Hill. He didn't have a history as a writer necessarily, but he figured out how to write extremely well. Uh, When you met him, he had already suffered a stroke and lost his eyesight. But uh, from the time that he lost his eyesight, he dictated his memoirs, and he basically did it with somebody who became a speechwriter. Adam Frankel,
1: wonderful young speechwriter for President Obama was right. worked with him on that book. Another, the thing, a funny thing about Adam was he was of an entirely different generation, but he was also inspired by the history of that era, and he sought, like you sought, uh, Sorenson out.
0: Right, Ted Sorenson was a person who just knew how to write and inspire people. And, the, and the, the, if you go through the President Kennedy's speeches, they are so eloquent. I'm now the chairman of the Kennedy Center, and I'm very involved in, in the Kennedy School at, at Harvard and very often I reread the speeches for, to look for quotes and so forth, and they're so eloquent. Now, the family has often said that, yes, it's a combination of Sorensen and Kennedy, and I think that's probably right. Kennedy did um, uh, edit the works, but there's no doubt that Ted Sorensen had a, a major role in it. It's also uh,
1: true that uh, great speech writers learn the cadence and the approach of the people they're writing for. They learn how to write in the voice of that person. I think it's unfair to Kennedy to suggest that his voice was Ted Sorensen's voice, but
0: there's no doubt
1: that Ted Sorensen made those speeches soar.
0: He had rhetoric and and skills that were were quite good. But again, um, as most people would say, the, the speech that is given by a president is that president's speech. So you can say a speechwriter worked on it, but the president gave the speech. I think the family was to some extent not happy at times with the idea that maybe people thought, not because of what Ted Sorensen said, but people would say that Ted Sorensen wrote that speech and the family would say, well, John Kennedy worked on it and maybe he deserves the credit because he gave the speech. Whoever... Did the speech or deserve the credit. They were wonderful, a wonderful combination of Kennedy and Sorensen. And you've rarely seen since then a combination of a speechwriter and a speaker which blended so well together. Yeah,
1: I, I saw some of that with. Uh, I used to run the speechwriting unit in the White House when I was there. And we had a, just a wonderful Bevy Adam being one of them. John Favreau was the young right. lead speechwriter. His relationship with Obama uh, around these speeches was extraordinary. Now, he would write beautiful drafts. Obama was the best speechwriter in the right, White House and right. would take them to a whole uh, another level. So you, you you had your experience with Sorensen, and Sorensen then helped you uh, get back to Washington.
0: Yes. he. I, I wasn't a gifted lawyer, let's be honest. If I was a gifted lawyer, <laughs> I'd be practicing law. Um, I was Peter It's good Principal. that you
1: found something else to do.
0: Well, I, I was Peter Principal as a lawyer, so I was working hard, but nobody said this man is going to be, you know, Edward Bennett Williams. Nobody ever said that. So I hinted to Ted Sorensen several times that I was looking for something to do in government, and then ultimately an opportunity came along to work for a man he said might be the next president of the United States. It was Birch Bayh. Yeah, I senator from Indiana. A gifted senator, a liberal from a conservative state. His son subsequently became senator as well and also ran for president. Birch Bayh. Uh, I became his chief counsel on his Senate subcommittee, but I was really um, there thinking he might be president, and, and he had a reasonably chance, good chance. But 30 days after I joined, his, he ended his campaign. So I said, uh-oh, my career is going up in smoke. I wasn't a great lawyer. Nobody at Paul Weiss said that I was going to be a future great lawyer I joined a Senate campaign or Senate operation, but the person was running for president, and 30 days after I joined, he left. And then what happened to me—
1: You don't ascribe that to your joining the campaign, do you? Well, it might be. Other people probably did, so who knows?
0: <laughs> um, but you know, look, you um, I don't know exactly how you met Barack Obama, but whoever, however you had met Barack Obama, if somebody hadn't made a call or something hadn't happened, it might not have— happened mm-hmm. you know there's always the serendipity yeah. of life so the serendipity in life for me was i was sitting in my senate office wondering what am i going to do with the rest of my career it seems to be going nowhere and i got a call oh, at 26 blue. years old or something right but i got a call out of the blue from somebody who had been a lobbyist who had been lobbying me in, in the senate and he said would you like to interview for a job with jimmy carter and i said come on carter's not to be president
1: yeah he, i'm sorry go ahead you
0: so i got an interview and i got a job to work in the general election campaign for jimmy carter Unfortunately, uh, Carter later reminded me that he was 33 points ahead when I joined, <laughs> and he only won by one point.
1: Yeah, but at least he had the cushion there. So <laughs> it's uh, a good thing he had a 33 point lead before I joined. Yes, you worked for Stu Eisenstadt, who was his domestic policy uh, right. advisor, and you went into the White House with them. Yes. Tell me what that experience was like. You, you're you're a you are a. famous student of history and an appreciator of american history what was it like for you as a 26 27 year old uh, young man to walk into that building
0: well just like you had a background that came from very modest uh circumstances somewhat the same um I was 27 when I became the deputy domestic policy advisor. Now, I'm not qualified for that job, but, you know, I got the title, and a lot of people in White House staffs aren't qualified, and sometimes presidents aren't qualified, but I got the job. I have an office in the West Wing, and because uh, Carter did – in those days, before the Internet, uh, there wasn't a good record of what somebody had said. So Carter asked Stewart, and Stewart then asked me to compile all the promises he had made in the two years he was running. Uh, somebody said, Well, why do we want to do that? Because then we'll be, you know, everybody will know. But so I spent much of the transition. Going through every speech, questionnaire, interview, compiled them all, and then we gave it to the president. And he said, "Great, I'm going to honor my promises." That advantage for me was that since I knew the promises, I would sit in meetings and say, "Well, Mr. President, you can't do that because that would violate your promise." So it's a little awkward at the cabinet secretary is saying, "Mr. President, we should do this," and a 27-year-old is saying, "Well, Mr. President, will violate your campaign." And how did the
1: president react when you intervened?
0: Well, sometimes he wasn't happy, and sometimes he would say, "Well, thank you, because now I don't have to do that because it would violate my promise." But, but I. I did a number of things in the White House. I enjoyed it. I, I was known then for working around the clock, and Newsweek had written an article about me saying I'd never left the White House because I was single at the time, and I basically got there at 7 in the morning and worked to about 11 at night. And this is what I did more yeah. or less six or seven days a week. And as you know from your own experience, it's hard to free yourself up from the White House because there's always a crisis. Absolutely. There's always something. So I was young I've enough. Never,
1: I've never – just to, yes. just to say on that point, I never have worked anywhere where – the time passed so quickly. I never found myself right. saying, "Gee, when is this day going to end?" I only right. found myself saying, "Man, I'm going to run out of time, and I've still got stuff to do." Because there's everything that comes there is is complex, stimulating, significant, and
0: uh, you know that's that fills your days. Well, it's also, you realize, if you make a mistake in your daily life, most people may not pay attention. To it. If you make a mistake at the White House, the whole world knows pretty quickly. And in those days, uh, what we, we focused on was the evening news. They were, I think it was a 15-minute show on evening news. And so you geared up your day to be on the evening news. We didn't have internet. We didn't have the kind of uh, social media that we have today. So it was a different experience, but still was uh, very uh, time-constraining and i love what i was doing you know if you if you love what you're doing it's not that hard to work those hours if you hate what you're doing then you you watch your yeah. watch all the time
1: you know what you say is so uh significant really that and it's important to focus on it how different uh it was for presidents at that time not that they weren't under constant pressure but you didn't have this sort of literally second to second kind of ongoing public discussion. Right. Uh, and it did give you some time as a reporter. I used to be a reporter before uh, I went into politics and government. It gave you time to reflect. It also gave people in public office a little bit more time to reflect. didn't mean that they wouldn't make mistakes, but uh, it
0: was a different environment. Well, in those days, you could say, what do we want to have be the lead news of the day that we were going to make Today, it's almost beyond the control of a president because so many things are happening and you have to respond so quickly. It was different. The answer your earlier question— Unless you tweet, then you can decide what the story of the day is going to be. To answer your earlier question, when you're working in the White House, you know, you and I worked in the West Wing. The West Wing was uh, developed because Teddy Roosevelt had all those kids and he was having so many kids in the White House that it was too crowded to have a staff there. And so he ultimately um, had a New York architecture firm, a well-known firm, build the West Wing. And um, then it was redesigned many different times. But that is a historic building. Many famous White House aides have worked in that West Wing, and you were, you're were you in the same office as, as a lot of other famous people. It it can be intoxicating. On the other hand, Stuart Eisenstein, my boss, um, he had the office that John Ehrlichman had had just before him, <laughs> who had gone to jail. So
1: <laughs> Yes, it can be humbling as well. Yeah. But I, I must say, every time I walked in that building, I never – I always stopped and – uh, you could, you can feel the history. Uh, it almost, uh, through osmosis, you know the smell, the, the. It, you know, you, you know you're walking into a historic place, and, and to to go to work there every day is a. It's also a great experience.
0: You can see the most important people in the world just sitting in that White House West Wing waiting room. So it is amazing when you walk through the waiting room of people who are coming in because the most important people in the country somehow managed to figure out how to get into meeting with the president or other senior aides. So it's just amazing who you get to see every day. Now, you didn't have a uh, protracted uh,
1: engagement there because the president's contract got canceled in 1980. Tell me about the Carter administration from your standpoint. What what went wrong uh, for, for Jimmy Carter?
0: My— Former boss Stuart Eisenstadt is coming out with a 750-page book on the (laughs) Carter administration, and many of the things will probably be described there. But my own view is that uh, President Carter was relatively inexperienced in the ways of Washington. Uh, He meant well. He was very smart, very cerebral. But he had an engineer's mindset, which was to say that he thought he could engineer every problem, and he was used to doing things himself. So he wasn't used to having a high-powered staff. He hadn't had one in Georgia. He was used to thinking through intellectually what the right solution was, as an engineer would, and say, okay, I've come up with the right solution, but, Mr. President, this politically doesn't sell. He said, well, it should sell because it's the right solution. So he was developing solutions that sometimes couldn't sell politically. The Democrats had been out of power in Congress for eight years. They wanted a president who gave them their pent-up demands, and Carter didn't want to do that in some cases. Carter also was trying to do so many things. He didn't prioritize in quite the way that, you might want. So he didn't say, priority one is this, priority two is this, priority three is this. We said, everything's a priority. So we did so many things. Now, in hindsight, the Carter presidency will look much better 20 years, 30 years, or 40 years from now because he actually got a lot of things done that at the time were unpopular. For example, the Panama Canal Treaties. Nobody thought the president should take that on, but he did, and it was the right policy to do, but it didn't give him any political benefits. In fact, Ronald Reagan used it in running against him many times.
1: Right. He... uh I mean, you you talk about his inexperience. In a sense, he was elected because of his inexperience. The country was uh, uh, revulsed by what happened during the uh, Nixon administration. Uh, President Ford had pardoned President Nixon, I think properly right. so, by the way. Uh, very decent man. But there was a real sense uh, of a need for cleansing, and here came Carter promising a a government as good as the people.
0: He he did, but he he invented something that Barack Obama benefited from, and it's this. Uh, Carter invented the idea that you don't have to be experienced by traditional standards of having served in a cabinet, be vice president of the United States, be a senator for many years before you run for president. Carter was governor of Georgia for four years, He met many people who were thinking of running for president when he was governor, and he said, hey, these people aren't any better than me, so why don't I try? So he left his governorship in 1974 after one term. You could only serve one term Mm -hmm. in Georgia then. And so he had 74, 75, 76 to really work on the campaign. And he kind of more or less invented the idea of going to Iowa. If you do well in Iowa, you go into New Hampshire. You do well Mm -hmm. in New Hampshire, you're off to the races. Barack Obama wasn't traditionally qualified either. He had been a state senator for a number of years and a United States senator for – uh, more or less two years before he ran, that wasn't the same qualifications that you might say George Herbert Walker Bush had. Right. On the other hand, he recognized, as Carter did, you do well in Iowa, you go on to New Hampshire. You do right. well in New Hampshire, go on to South Carolina, and, and so on. So,
1: yeah, Carter really invented, in many ways, the Iowa caucuses and made it the institution Correct, and uh, he didn't, and he didn't actually today. win the Iowa
0: caucus. People forget, he came in second to Undecided. But Undecided was, uh, you know, nobody knew who Undecided was, so he actually <laughs> came in second.
1: Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with David Rubenstein. What, what did you learn during those years as a young man in the White House that ended up uh, informing the rest of your, of your career?
0: Well, I learned a couple things. One, hard work usually pays off. Um, learning how to get along with people pays off. Uh, having good contacts pays off. I learned that uh, humility is probably a good virtue. I learned uh, that communicating well, either by learning how to speak properly or learning how to write properly, can pay off. And I learned that if you want to be a leader, you've got to set an example for other people. And so uh, if I was going to get people to follow me, I had to actually know more about the subject than other people and and do the things that would show that I was uh, deserving of people following me. But
1: you didn't quite know when you left there what you were going to do.
0: Um, it was a humiliating experience. You, fortunately, did not have this experience. Um, people came to me all the time and said, David, you're a bright young man, very bright. You're hardworking. When you want a job, call me up. And I said, well, I'm going to stay for the entire eight years. Well, so when we lost the election, and I, we wanted to run against Ronald Reagan. We wanted to run against him because— I figured, I was then 31 at the re election time, he was 69 years old. I said, anybody 69, how can he possibly be ready for anything but a nursing home? I'm now 68. But uh, I thought (laughs) anybody that old, we couldn't possibly lose them. Now Jess Unruh, who had been the Speaker of the Assembly in California, came to us and said, be careful what you wish for. He's a very gifted campaigner. So when we ran against him and we thought we were going to win, and we still thought that we would get the hostages out, and then we would win. and The Iranian hostages, 50 correct. hostages. We never could get them out. We didn't know that the Iranian uh, hostage takers were not going to let them out until Reagan became president. But had we gotten them out, I think Carter would have won. Today, Carter is seen as having been a failed president because he, among other things, lost by a large amount to to Reagan. Had we gotten the hostages out, I think we would have possibly won. People don't agree with that. But it was the polling was pretty close. It, then the last couple of days, when we— uh, failed in, in an effort to get him out, the, the, the bottom dropped out of Carter's polling. But leaving that aside, what happened was the day after the election, I said, "Okay, now I'm going to call these people up who told me how bright I am, how smart I am, and I'll go get one to work for one of these law firms." None of them would call me back because I was out of power then. I was a dead man in Washington parlance, and so it took me many, 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 many months to get a law firm to hire me.
1: Yeah, that's a cold hard lesson about Washington. What did Harry Truman say if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog? A
0: dog. So mm. I would, my mother, you know, would say, well, David, um, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I have so many offers, I don't know which one to take. And she said, well, why don't you take one of them and get started? Well, then it was it was February and March and April and May and June. And she said, David, you know, it's like six months. Why don't you take one of these many offers? I said, well, I just don't know which one's the best and so (laughs) forth. Finally, some law firm felt so sorry for me. They said, we'll give you an offer, but you start at the bottom more or less. You, You know, we'll pretend you didn't even work at the White House. So I had to start all over again. And it was a little humbling. And you were no more enthused about a future in the law as you were
1: the first time you experienced it.
0: Correct. And the reason was, um, if to be a great lawyer, you have to pay attention to detail maybe more than I wanted to. You also have to really um, love it. I didn't love it, but the real problem I had was that in the years that I worked on Capitol Hill and the White House, those were the years that a young lawyer would learn the legal skills that are necessary to be a partner and a senior lawyer. And I was... In the White House, I didn't have those skills. So when I went back to a law firm, my peers already had skills that I didn't have. So the only skill I could have was maybe getting clients to hire my law firm or maybe me for, for something that I really probably wasn't that qualified for. But if you don't love what you're doing, you can't do a good job at it. And I didn't love the practice of law. I knew I had to do something different.
1: And you had an inspiration for a different kind of uh, private equity firm, Uh you're you you got five you five you borrowed five million dollars right, right, and right. you started this firm. It's now worth 150 billion. What was the inspiration that you had that made the Carlisle Group uh, so unique?
0: Um, there are a couple of things. Uh, one is there were no leverage buyout firms in Washington, so you could say we're the only game in town. So maybe people take us more seriously. Secondly, I said we were going to focus on companies heavily affected by the federal government. The ways guys, guys in New York couldn't do that. People thought that was credible. I did develop a technique with my partners of bringing in people who had served in senior positions in government much more than me, and that gave us some visibility. So when I brought in Frank Carlucci, former Secretary of Defense, in Reagan, that gave us some credibility. When I brought in Jim Baker, that gave us credibility. John Major, George Herbert Walker Bush, um, these were people at Dick Darman that had a lot of credibility, and it gave us visibility in ways that helped, and sometimes later it probably backfired to some extent, but it helped in initial. Why did it backfire? It backfired for a couple of reasons. One, to some extent, people thought that we were a bunch of politicians, not business people, and in our country, mixing politics and business is often not considered a great thing. Um, business people want the investments to not be politically tinged, so some people thought that that was an issue. Secondly, when George W. Bush became president, and his father was connected to us, and Jim Baker was connected to us, and then the Iraq War went south. Um, people began to blame us for the Iraq war. And I said, I have nothing to do with the Iraq war. But there was a movie made by Michael Moore or other things that happened where we were getting blamed for what was going on in Iraq. We have nothing to do with it. So uh, it it backfired to some extent. I'm very glad I had those relationships. They were very helpful in the beginning. But at some point, it it kind of turned a little bit on us.
1: Isn't one of the things that made the firm successful this notion of having special insights into the way government works uh, and being able to if you acquired uh, companies that had were heavily regulated by the government and so knowing how to navigate that landscape?
0: To some extent, but it may have been overstated. Um, you know when we were raising money maybe, um, people thought we had greater insights, and I wouldn't say that we had no insights. If you live in Washington and you, inf- you invest in a company that is affected by the government, you might have some insights. But really what made a difference was the track record in the end. We've now invested about $110 billion of equity over 30 years. We've averaged about a 27% gross internal rate of return each of those 30 years. So if you put your money in the bank account, now you've got maybe a half Yeah, my
1: bank isn't paying as much right. as so, that. I'm going to have to talk to them about right. this.
0: Right, so your, your bank account, it might be paying you, I don't know, a half a percent interest or something like that. So 0.5% versus 27%. And we did it for 30 years. And how
1: do you achieve that? Talk talk, talk a little bit about what you do.
0: Well, what we do in private equity is you buy companies that have some problems. They may be not well managed. Maybe they don't have an alignment with the management team or the workers. uh, They have a bad strategy. And we buy these companies and we fix them up and over a three- to five-year period of time make them better and then ultimately sell them. And the theory of private equity is that you are um, going to get a pretty good rate of return after you made these companies much better and because of the way the industry works, you get 20% of the profits on other people's money that if you do a good job, you can make a fair amount of money and that has really driven the private equity and the venture capital business.
1: I uh, I have to confess at this point that I probably didn't, Entirely help the private equity industry in the 2012 campaign uh, because we we raised issues with uh, Governor Romney and right. and uh, and his his uh, private equity firm. Uh, well, let me talk about that. Yes, um, I am asking you. I, I'm, I'm this
0: is. I know. think uh, what happened there, from my understanding, is this: uh, every time Governor Romney would talk about private equity, I was told that his polling numbers would go down, even if he would defend it. So he concluded, I was told, that mentioning private equity, even if he defended it, wouldn't work because the phrase private equity was just seen as a negative. So he concluded he really wouldn't be better off defending it. Secondly, his former firm, Bain, was afraid of getting into the business of defending what had been attacked because they didn't want to be seen as political. They didn't want to be seen as Republican or Democratic. So they, they gave information defending it to Romney, but Romney didn't really uh, use it. Now, uh, in the early days of private equity, and when Mitt Romney was um, in, in Bain, Bain was a relatively small firm. It's a firm today that probably manages well over $100 billion. It managed about $3 billion when he was there. It was small. And in the early days of private equity, people were obsessed with getting the highest rate of return. And if that meant... Closing some factories, not worrying about environmental considerations, um, that was done in those days. So it's not impossible to believe that some of the things that were said about Bain or Mitt Romney in those days might have been accurate in some respects. I don't know the details. All private equity firms in those days were doing some things that today you wouldn't do. Just like in politics today, you wouldn't do certain things that you did years ago. Um, today, um, concerns about ESG concerns, environmental, social governance practices are much different. But there's no doubt in those days, some things were done that look bad today. I don't know.
1: I've seen some things in politics lately that I wouldn't have dreamed okay. of doing. Okay. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I I must say I think you're absolutely right We were sort of surprised. We we raised cases that we thought were legitimate questions. We were surprised that there was no effort on the other side to tell a different story. I just told you the reason. Yeah.
0: Um, In fact, based on my having talked to Bain people, they told me that Mitt Romney's polling showed that mentioning private equity didn't. Even if he defended it, it didn't help. Yeah. You know, now, he may respond to this podcast and say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's why he didn't do it. I think,
1: you know, I, I, I've gotten to know uh, Governor Romney okay. since the election. He's been here at the Institute of Politics So what did the he university. say that he
0: didn't agree with that?
1: No, I I mean, he, he uh, uh, I, I think he was concerned about kind of leading with his chin. He right. was, as you say, told about that. But, I you know, as I think back on his campaign, one of the, great uh, deficiencies of it was that uh, they didn't want him to talk about his business, which was a big part of his life. They didn't want him to talk about his faith, his Mormon faith, which is another big part of his life uh, because they thought it might be a vulnerability with some voters. And they didn't want him to talk about his governorship because he had been the author of a a healthcare plan that was much like the Affordable Care Act. So now you're taking out most of this man's life and when you're running for president of the United States you have to build on a foundation of authentic biography right and he he didn't have that and and you know i in retrospect I, I feel for him in that regard because um he was sort of left defenseless
0: i i was a little surprised by his not defending private equity not just because of the reasons i mentioned but he should have anticipated it when he ran for the United States um, Senate in against 94. Ted Kennedy. Mm-hmm. The same arguments were made, and many of the same instances were cited. So, they, and they, and they
1: defeated him then,
0: right? And, and many he was ahead of Kennedy for a while, and then after those barrage of attacks on private equity, among other things, he he lost.
1: Let me ask you uh, a question that I know you've been asked a million times before, but we're in this. Now we're in the latest iteration of so-called tax reform. I suspect right. it's not going to end up being reform. I sus- suspect it's going to be tax cuts uh, if it happens. Uh, but uh, the the issue comes up often of carried interest, which is one way in which you and others in private equity benefit. and essentially you get to uh, uh, you get to have your revenues taxed at the capital gains level. Uh, explain why that is fair. Because capital gains basically was created uh, to give investors incentive. Uh, Tell me why you who manage these funds should have the same benefit.
0: Well, let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's suppose you and I go into a partnership and we buy a house together. And let's suppose um, I put up a million dollars to buy the house, but the house needs to be fixed up. You say... That you're my partner, and we're going to split profits 50 50. Okay? But your role is not to put up the capital. You're going to do the work. You're going to repair the house. You're going to work on it. You're going to fix it up. And then if we sell it for $2 million, we'll split the profits 50 50 because we're 50 50 partners. What you've done is you fixed the house up. You've done all the hard work. Now, if we are to, um, uh, Figure out how to tax your income when that occurs. When we sell the house for two million, how should you be taxed? You're my partner. I put up a million dollars, but you've done the hard work of making the house more valuable. So when we go to sell the house and we sell for two million, how should you be taxed on the profits of the partnership? In other words, we we have a partnership, and how should you be taxed? Well,
1: I mean, I guess there are there are a couple of questions with that. One is, um, I, pre- presumably, you get paid also for. Uh, the work that you do in fixing up the house, you get paid. You guys get paid a management fee, right? For managing, we have to these give funds. it back.
0: We have to, The way the management fee works is, before we can collect any of the twenty percent, we have to pay the management fee back. Um, it's in effect a, a, a loan, in effect. But let me illustrate it another way, uh, and let me tell you how the history came about. In the nineteen thirties and forties, in the United States. There was a oil depletion allowance such that if you invested in oil drilling, you would get a big way to shelter your taxes. So people who wanted oil drilling money from Texas would send people to New York to get wealthy people in New York to invest in these oil drilling programs. The people that went to New York, they were called promoters, and they were trying to find wealthy people to invest in these programs. Then when they ultimately did it, they would make a piece of the profits of the drilling program. They went to the IRS, and the IRS said, well, you're taking a risk. There's no guarantee that you'll raise the money, so you should be taxed at the capital gains rate. And that's when the IRS first said you should be taxed at a capital gains rate. When real estate developers came along, they were getting money from other people. Uh, They were taxed at the capital gains rate on the work that they did to improve a building. Then the venture capital people came along, and they're – Work was to be considered the same way, and then private equity. So it's not as if we invented it. Yeah, I'm not
1: accusing you right. of inventing right. it, and I'm not, and
0: I'm not condemning you for taking okay. advantage of it. What
1: I'm saying is, should it exist? And you know, uh, you look at the tax code today. There's a trillion dollars of tax expenditures, preferences built into okay. the tax code. Uh, carried interest is a small part of that, twenty billion. Still, not uh, nothing.
0: It's it's less than that, but okay. Uh, Whatever it is, but it but. Uh, but let me answer your question yeah. this way. Mm-hmm. Um, first, again, you're correct in pointing out, I didn't invent it. So it's like if you I take... You pointed it out, but I agreed right, with you. All right. I take a charitable deduction. Yeah. I didn't invent a charitable deduction. I take my charitable deductions. I I take whatever you're allowed to do. Um, I can't be criticized for taking a charitable deduction. I right. didn't invent it. So right. I didn't invent the carried interest right. deduction. I'm just simply do- taking it. Now, is it fair? Is that your question? I would say that a lot of times people who are not the famous private equity people, but the people that are building the house, or like the example I gave earlier, they are taking a risk. In some cases, we're taking a risk. There's no guarantee that I'm going to make a successful investment, so I am taking a risk. Uh, But in the end, uh, if you are going to uh, look at it a different way, the United States is the center of venture capitalism in the world. We're the center of private equity. It's been a great business for our country because, we generate enormous profits in this country. We fix companies up, and we also are getting profits from overseas because we are the principal beneficiaries of investments overseas. They're largely U.S. public pension funds. So you can argue that this is not the worst sin in the tax code. <laughs> uh, and there are, other, there are many sins in the Having tax code.
1: Having r- r- studied this tax code a little, I, I, I'm willing to assert that it's not the worst sin okay. in the tax code. There are many. So,
0: um, like For example, today, uh, people often criticize us Um, in our industry, and maybe it's fair, maybe it's not fair. Let me give you a a loophole that I think is quite interesting that I didn't benefit from because I didn't have any money when I went to the White House. But today, if you join the government of the United States, you go work in the White House or the Treasury or any department, you have to get a certificate. You get a certificate typically from the Office of Government Ethics. This certificate says you don't have to pay taxes on anything you're forced to sell, and therefore you don't pay a tax on it. So that's a big benefit, but it's a loophole. If you put your money in a certain um, type of security or interest and you don't liquefy it afterwards, you never pay tax. So many people who go into the U.S. government today are paying no tax ever on the things they're selling. Yeah. Isn't that a loophole? Yeah.
1: Look, I, I, there are plenty of them. I, I mean, I would argue that uh, re- that we could stand real tax reform. We should lower Okay. Uh, corporate tax rates, but we should pay for it by blowing out a lot of these uh, tax preferences, loopholes, uh, and make the tax code much simpler. I, I think that would be, uh, you, you know, you, you've you forgotten more about business than I will well, ever know, but it seems to me that would be a real boon okay. to business. To,
0: uh, look, you were in the government for about four years. Two. Two. Okay, two, and President Obama was in for eight years. hmm um, he didn't propose major tax reform, and I think probably because he recognized it's very difficult to do. We it haven't is. had major tax reforms in 1986 yes. and before that in 1954. Mm-hmm. Uh, proposals now that have come forward seem to be in favor of doing some tax reform. It's very difficult to get it done. I, I, I think everything should be on the table and everything should be looked at with a dispassionate uh, view. I don't know what the right policy should be on, on all these things, but I think everybody should be treated equal. And everybody should, for example, people that benefit from carried interest, um, everybody that benefits, real estate, venture capital, um, uh, energy, it all should be treated the same. However, whatever policy it might be. Well, let me. What
1: about what about capital and labor? You know, I I, I did a, a, I had a conversation here a couple of weeks ago with Bill Bradley, who was one of the architects right. of the 1986 right. tax reform, and you and that tax reform uh, taxed uh, uh, labor and capital at the same right. Level doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't we shouldn't we do
0: that? Well, it depends on what context you mean say labor and capital. It, they're- like wages. Like, shouldn't people who who uh, who okay.
1: whose basic income comes okay. from their from their paycheck uh, pay the well, same rate?
0: Right now we've we've had a we have a capital gains tax in our ta- in our country which is lower than the ordinary rate. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, you could argue that having this capital gains tax might be one of the reasons we have the best economy in the world and the strongest and biggest economy in the world. You could argue that. Well, why would you want to take a chance on on ruining it? Many countries have no capital gains tax. Many countries in Europe have no capital gains tax. And many companies in Asia, uh, countries in Asia have no capital gains tax. Um, I think we have a capital gains tax, but it's not as if uh, other people um, are treating capital and labor equal. In fact, I'm very... I'm not aware of any country in the world today that treats labor and capital exactly the same. Uh,
1: we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with David Rubenstein. You, you did very well, as we've pointed out. You've also done good, met a lot, a lot of good with the money that you've uh, earned. And one of the things that you've done is, uh, for example, when... Uh, there was an earthquake in Washington, and the Washington right. Monument uh, began to crumble. You paid for the uh, for the rep, rep repair of the Washington Monument. You've uh, purchased uh, historic documents, the Magna Carta being the most uh, 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 conspicuous of them, right. and you've loaned them to. Uh, w- how do you see the U? And, and I should mention. I would be ungrateful if I didn't mention that you've also supported uh, uh, educational institutions around this country, including the University of Chicago, where we sit today in a very generous way. How do you view uh, your philanthropy?
0: I came uh, from very modest circumstances, and uh, I want to give back to the country that made it possible for me to do this. I'm not sure whether in other countries somebody with my last name from my modest circumstances might have been able to achieve what i've been fortunate enough to achieve so when you have a fair amount of money there are only four things you can do with it one you can build a pyramid and be buried with it as the ancient pharaohs did there's no evidence that you really need the money in the afterlife so probably that's not a good thing second you can um, spend it just buy lots of planes and homes and things but i don't think that's productive for me. Yeah. Third, you can... You'd have uh, quite a fleet if you tried to spend all um, money on that. Well, I, there are people who do that, but I, that isn't for me. Third, you can give it away to your children. And it's, it's not clear to me that giving your children staggering sums of money necessarily makes them better human beings. Very few people, if any, have ever won a Nobel Prize if they inherited $100 million or $200 million or a billion dollars. So basically, you're left with giving it away, in my view. And when you're giving it away, uh, you can do it while you're alive or upon your death. If you do it upon your death, it's not clear, at least in my case, that I'll know where it's going to go or be around to see it because I'm not sure where I'm going to be. But <laughs> so I want to give it away while I'm alive. If you
1: find out, send word, will you? I,
0: I will let you know. But <laughs> I, I, Bill Gates uh, came up with the idea of the giving pledge with, yeah. with Warren Buffett and Melinda Gates, and he called me early on, and I was one of the 40 people who signed it. Explain no. what that is. The giving pledge says, essentially, if you have a net worth of a billion dollars or more, you promise to give away, upon your death or earlier in your life, at least half of your net worth. Now, I have said I'm going to give away all my money, uh, assuming I live a normal actuarial life. I want to do it uh, my lifetime. And um, most of my money goes to education and medical research, but there is one thing that that gets a lot of attention because nobody else is really doing it. It's what I coined the phrase of patriotic philanthropy, which is to say it's designed to give money to things that remind people of our heritage, the good and the bad. Uh, for example, buying historic documents like the Magna Carta or the Emancipation Proclamation and putting them on display where people can go see them and maybe be inspired to learn more about American history. Because if you have a more informed citizenry, maybe we'll have a better government. For example, right now, it's hard to believe, but a Pew's, I mean, an Annenberg survey of two weeks ago said that 75% of Americans cannot name the three branches of government, and 25% of Americans cannot name a single branch of government. Ten percent in a recent Pew survey of Americans said that Judge Judy is on the United States Supreme Court. (laughs) And a recent survey of high school sophomores found that more high school sophomores could name the first three names of the three stooges than the first three names of any founding fathers. So the reason is we don't teach civics anymore. You can graduate from American college, not take an American history course. You can graduate as a history major in most American colleges, not to take an American history course. So what I'm trying to do is to educate people a little bit more about American history. And one of the things I've tried to do is to do it with members of Congress, not that they are uneducated. But I started a program three or four years ago where I get a great historian like David uh, McCullough or Doris Kearns Goodwin and invite them to let me interview them at the Library of Congress only for members and their guests. And we get about 300 members of Congress coming each time. And I... I, I encourage that they sit with people from the opposite party and that they um, learn a Amer- little bit more about American history. So I'm trying in my modest way to try to get people to learn more about history and the theory that maybe if you learn more, we'd have a better citizenry. And I've also tried in that direction to try to fix up things that have gone into some repair. You mentioned the Washington Monument, but the Monticello, Montpelier, mm-hmm. other places that don't seem to get as much money as they need. And so it's a modest amount of what I do, but it's something that has – gotten some resonance with people, and I'm happy to do it. You talk about
1: uh, bringing Republicans and Democrats together at these dinners that you do at the Library of Congress. Washington's changed quite a bit since you were a young White House staffer, and and it doesn't feel like it's changed for the better.
0: Yes. In those days, in the 70s, Um, Democrats and Republicans would figure out that if they're going to pass a bill, they have to do it together. And as you know, most historic legislation in the United States has been bipartisan. The first major piece of legislation that was not bipartisan was the so-called Obamacare legislation, where no Republicans would vote for it. And we've reached a situation, I think, over the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, where their parties are so divided, in part because of Uh, people being afraid of being primaried, in part because the money is just out of control, in part because of social media, talk radio, other Mm -hmm. things. Uh, Democrats and Republicans are just in their separate corners. They don't socialize. They don't really know each other. And the idea of of working together on a bill is something that's antithetical to many people. And as a result, the country is operating in a somewhat dysfunctional situation with respect to government.
1: What role does the president play in that? Uh, Because he is a... Uh, I'm I, fair to say he's someone who has tapped into a vein uh, within his political base that he keeps going back to, uh, but it doesn't. It's not one that encourages a, a, a spirit of compromise.
0: Well, I think uh, probably from the time that George W. Bush was elected, you've seen this big divide. I mean, because of George W. Bush's election, the way it was it occurred. Some Democrats did not consider him, I won't say legitimate, but they did, they weren't as happy with the way he was elected. And I think Barack Obama, for reasons that you know better than me, uh, probably didn't have the, the support of some Republicans feeling he was as legitimate as they might have thought somebody else might have been for reasons that were unfair. And I think... Uh, this trend has continued for lots of reasons, and I, I wish I had a solution to it. I don't know that it's going to change anytime soon. We probably need a national crisis of some type to bring us together. Although I don't want a national crisis. That's probably the only thing that we're going to do. We had that after 9-11 where the parties got together for a while, but then they split apart. And you know, you're familiar more than I am with the phenomenon of being primaried. Most members of Congress, even though it's not a great job, they don't want to lose the job, and they're f- afraid of being For convaries. many of them, it's
1: the best job they ever had, though. I mean, it's easy to be – it's easy to say that, but, you know, it, it's not a bad job uh, if you're the most important person in your community and uh, – It has some challenges.
0: For example, 75 members of the House of Representatives live in their uh, offices, because the, the salary is roughly $175,000. Mm-hmm. It's hard to support two houses, and if you have children, support them on that salary. Um, not impossible. Obviously, people do it, but it's tough. And so, you, you know, it's not the greatest job in the world, I, I don't think.
1: And uh, their families don't travel with them. So that's another element of this. Used in, back in the day, uh, family, uh, a lot of congressional right. families actually lived in the Washington area. They
0: don't so much anymore because members are there from typically from Tuesday to Thursday, so they're back in the district or the state. Typically, the House members typically have to go back every weekend. It's not the easiest life in the world. Now, why do people want it? I guess, as you say, it's, it's in, you're the most important person maybe in your congressional district for a while. But in the old days, if you were a Democrat and the Republicans are in control or vice versa, you've got something to do. Today, if you're in the minority in the House of Representatives, it's not that much to do because they can't pass legislation.
1: And I don't want to be so jaundiced as to say that it's just about stature. It's also about, uh, I mean, I think there are people who go genuinely want to do things.
0: Uh, I and mean, Everybody goes there wanting to do things. When they get there, they realize it's not as easy as they thought. And there is a lot of frustration. Uh, there are members; A lot of members are retiring earlier than they traditionally would.
1: There is this huge cultural divide in our politics as well. You kind of ran headlong into it because you're the chairman of the Kennedy Center. You do this uh award ceremony every year that is a nationally televised event generally the president presides over uh over these award ceremonies the arts community hollywood not fans of donald trump and and he i guess perceiving that absented himself uh from this year's award ceremony uh was that the right thing to do
0: well, the situation was that of the five honorees this year, three of them publicly said they weren't going to go to the White House for a reception. And it's not impossible the other two might ultimately have had the same decision. So I think the president made a decision that probably made the most sense for everybody, which is to say, I, I don't need to come this year. We'll take a look at it in the future. Um, but this year probably wasn't going to work. It does speak,
1: though, to uh, this, as I said, this cultural divide. I uh, have uh, a home in Chicago, also one in rural Michigan. Uh, In Chicago, uh, very few of my neighbors uh, could fathom voting for Donald Trump. In Michigan, most of my neighbors had uh, Trump signs in their front yard and absolutely were persuaded, convinced that he was going to win. And it, it feels like we are shaking our fists across this jagged cultural divide, and he may be responsible for part of that.
0: It's clear that the country is very divided, and there are many factors. I can't say there's any one. There's no doubt that uh, people in Washington are very divided, but people in Washington reflect what the country feels. So country's very divided in, in many ways. So uh, it's, it's clear that uh, despite what uh, Barack Obama said in his famous 2004 speech, there are red states and there are blue states and there are some things that are just not going to change. Um, Now, it's not impossible that some could change, but some states today have no chance of voting Democratic and some have no chance of voting Republican. Now, uh, President Trump was elected in part because some states that people didn't think would go Republican actually did. Uh, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, probably being the two most visible ones. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, as as a student of history... Um, I want to end on a hopeful note. Uh, So tell me what your—you are a guy who spends so much time preserving, uh, you know, uh, preserving artifacts of our history. Uh, Tell me what in our history gives you hope about the future.
0: Well, the country um, is now 240-plus years old. And very few civilizations or countries have been at the, at the top for such a long time. We probably became the biggest economy in the world in 1870. And for that time, since that time, we've been the biggest economy in the world and the most admired country in so many parts of the world. I think we clearly have competition now from Asia for the, being the most important economic power in the world. I think as the most important political power in the world, we have competition as well. But I think in the end, what you have in the country here is um, the rule of law, the uh, quality of people who go, go into government service, the education that we have in our, our country, largely uh, higher education is spectacular, the envy of the world, the entrepreneurial spirit of the country, the uh, willingness of people to help other people. We have in the highest percentage of uh, in the world of philanthropy and volunteerism is in this country. So there are many great qualities the country has. We are... Uh, easily able to be depressed from time to time when you look at the headlines and see people fighting over things. But in the end, if you were to step back and say, "What country would you rather live in?" It's hard to know where any of us would rather live than the United States for all the great things we have in this country, despite the challenges. And what
1: about you? You wh- when you when people look back at at your. Life, you'll obviously be remembered for your success in business. How, how do you want to be? And by the way, before I leave you, I should ask you this question. I'd be remiss if I didn't. It turns out that you're a very fine interviewer and you do a show on Bloomberg uh, uh, twice a month. Right. You've interviewed presidents and people even more... Important than presence, Oprah. I think was one of your interviewees.
0: Yes, so she has a better job than being president.
1: right? <laughs> so, um, uh, what 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 is it about that that uh, you find so stimulating?
0: Well, I don't play golf, and so I substitute my golf time for my <laughs> you know as my interview is my hobby. But I I enjoy the intellectual sparring with people. Not that it's a contest, but asking people, and I'd like to see what makes people tick. How did they go from generally modest circumstances to the point where they're worth interviewing? And everybody has a different story. and Everybody likes to say how they got where they are. And I find it intellectually interesting and to kind of know more about people. So it's to me, it's not a, a chore to do it. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Well, I feel the same way. And it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you. And thank you for everything that you right. do for not just the University of Chicago, but for the country.
0: Well, my pleasure, and thank you for what you've done for the country and what you're going to do today for the Chicago Cubs, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Go Cubs.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.